um, have good news and bad news. All right? Um, we have an exciting message ahead of us today. That's the good news. And the bad news is, is the last one in 1 John. <laughs> so it has been a, a exciting journey studying this book, and we're getting to the end of it. Chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. And I titled the sermon today, The Preservation of the Saints. The Preservation of the Saints. And I thought about life preservers. I, I like asking those questions. Who invented this? Who came up with this idea? And how did that came about? Did it work? Did it, it or did it? Well, it seems like this idea has been um, worked on since 1808. Um, a group of Marines, they came up with these blocks of wood made of cork um, stuffed vest. It was a vest stuffed with cork um, that made people float. Uh, it wasn't implemented until 1854 when this Captain John Ross Word from the Royal National Lifeboat Institution in the UK created that vest and instituted to people to use it. Well, these life preservers we know that have saved lives, the lives of many, both uh, to protect from weather, uh, the, the really cold waters, and as well as for buoyancy. So they keep people from drowning in the body of water. Today, called the personal floating device, have saved the life of many. Right? That one device keeping on people. And I, my parallel here is that we do have a preserver, something that someone who is caring for our lives. I think we have heard a lot about the perseverance of the saints, right? The nature that a believer, once he's saved, the Lord will keep them and he will persevere to the end until the Lord comes back or he joins the Lord in death. Well, but we don't hear a whole lot of the preservation of the saints, which is something that the Lord does. And so in our text today, we will be looking at that. Um, so First John chapter 5, and looking at verse 18 to 21. This letter has been encouraging to us, has given us evidence again and again that we can know for a fact, we can have that certainty of having eternal life. And the apostles once his little children, the believers that he's so affectionate talks to, to have that certainty. In your outline there in the back, I put, um, copied from Daniel Aiken, 13 evidences, and I added one more from last week, that we can know for sure that we are believers because of all these things, all these proofs that the Lord has given us. So I'm not going to go over all of them, but... John is ending his letter very characteristically in the way that he normally does. He argued for the proper grounds of assurance, including moral test, the doctrinal test, the social test, the fellowship with other believers. And now he takes on a whole different theme and he introduces it with we know. So what do we know? Let's get into our text. We know that no one who, born, who is born of God sins but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you with thankfulness in our hearts, Father, for this letter that John wrote to the church in Ephesus. Lord, we're thankful for that community in Asia that knew your name, 
that we're struggling with assurance. And we know, Lord, that many of us, at one time or another, we question ourselves if we're right in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that this last message in First John will be an encouragement to your people. Keep us from distractions and give us, Lord, a heart of understanding as we look at these truths. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one more bold affirmation from John here um, that we know. So he's going to use three times that we know. And three things that we want to know about God preservation of the saints. The first point is God keeps his children from evil. God keeps his children from evil, from verses 18 to 20. Our second point is God keeps our confession and our salvation, verse 20. And then lastly, God's children, is the other way around, should keep themselves from idols, in verse 21. So our first point, God keeps his children from evil. And I kind of divided that in three subpoints that John mentions in, in this passage the three major enemies of the believer. The first one of them is our sinful flesh. We know that no one who is born of God sins. And I titled this point as God keeps us from continually giving into sin. John's first affirmation is the one that is the one that is truly born of God does not sin. A statement which at first glance it looks contradictory with the other stuff that he said, right? If we say in chapter one, chapter one, verse um, eight, if we say that we have no sin, we are making him a liar. But then in verse 10 also says, if we say that we have not sinned, we have made him a liar and his word is not in us. It was the same dilemma that we faced in chapter 3, verse 4, 10, uh, 4 to 10. He says, everyone who practices sin is also practice lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that that he appeared in order to take away the sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So this is how do we solve this apparent contradiction in the book? Well, it is helpful to understand that in the original text, in the Greek text, these verbs that he sins, it's a habitual, continuous action. This is the present tense indicating habitual and continuous action so that the statement is not that the Christian cannot fall into sin. We all know that, that we all fall into sin at one time or another. Indeed, he can and he does. Rather, is that while he may fall into sin, he cannot continue in it indefinitely. In other words, if the individual is truly born of God, the new birth will result in a new behavior. Earlier, when John had talked of the fact that the one who is born of God does not sin, he explained it by saying that such a person abides in God. There are in God, and God's nature abides in him. Here, he traces his assurance to the fact that Jesus keeps the Christian. He, he re reiterates a vi vitally important principle that he repeated earlier. No one who has been transformed by this new birth goes on living in an unrepented pattern of sin. Now, on the other hand, the unconverted, the person that does not know God, can do nothing but sin. They are sinners at birth like we were, is slaves to sin, defiant, rebellious, raiders of God, according to Romans, and under the dominion of Satan. In short, they are, as in Ephesians 1 says, 2, 1 says, dead in their trespasses. But that's not the case with believers. Um, Pastor John MacArthur lists here three reasons why the person who is born of God cannot live in this unbroken pattern of sin. He says, first, sin is incompatible with the law of God. The redeemed love 
the redeemed love God's law and cannot habitually live in violation of it, according to John that we just read. Second, sin is incompatible with the work of Christ, who appeared in order to take away our sins. Finally, sin is incompatible with the work of the Holy Spirit, who with the new birth plants the principle of the divine life in the redeemer, the redeemed. We have to study that we have the seed of God indwelling in us. We have the new nature, the, the, the mind of Christ that changes our perception of sin and our perception of the holiness of God. Dr. MacArthur concludes here saying that, that they that do not continually live in sin does not mean that the believers can reach a point in this life where they never sin. In fact, John said that those who made such claims, like we just read in first, um, chapter 1, 8, and 10, um, they are liars. Further, his description of Jesus as the believer's advocate assumes that they will continue to sin and need his intercession Chapter 2, verse 1, what does it say? Chapter 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All right? And the best way to translate this verse actually being, and if when anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father. It's not that we're perfect. Those who claim Christian perfection actually are in big trouble. They're making God a liar because we know that we do sin. Now, the point here is the same as earlier, that the pattern of righteousness characterizes the redeemed, but there's the pattern of unrighteous characterizes the unredeemed. All right? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I think it's a parallel passage that helps us understand why is that our life is different. How we don't keep on sinning. Well, because of this transformation that happens at the heart level in the life of the Christian. Romans chapter 6. And we're looking primarily at verse 17 through verse 22, Romans 7, oh, Romans 6, verse 17 through 22. Paul is praising the Lord here for this great power that releases us from sin. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now you, your members, present your members as slaves of righteousness, resulting in what? Sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from these things for which you were now ashamed? We look at our past behavior and there are things that we are ashamed of. But we no longer have that for the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed, that's the key here. The believer, though he sins... He's not a slave to sin. He's free. He sins by choice. But now having been freed from sin and is slave to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. Praise God. The unredeemed are is slaves to sin, but the redeemed are obedient from the heart to the law of God. And thus, having been freed from sin, they are is slaves to righteousness. The inevitable outcome for the unbeliever, Romans 6.23, I think we have memorized, most of us, is a spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. 
But those who have been freed from sin, they are freed from sin and enslaved to God and they gain eternal life. Now John sees here that God's work of supernaturally preserving his people, which is guaranteed as he's justifying them. The promises of God constitute our guarantee. That's why Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Then he wrote to the Thessalonians, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely. Without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. Near the end of his life, uh, when he was with this martyrdom looming, Paul is still affirmed. You know, I have this confidence that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy 4.18 God's eternal, unchangeable purpose to save the elect guarantees their preservation. He saved them and he is going to preserve them even from themselves. What amazing promises, what a comfort for those who might be temporarily struggling with some sin in their life. Dear beloved, you can know that God himself is actively keeping you so that who he started a good work in you will bring it to completion. Whatever it is that you are struggling right now, you can be confident that he is able to grow you out of that and unto himself. But you may ask, but what, if, what about Satan? What if he tempts me? What if he attacks me in a way that I won't resist? Well, that leads us to our next point because as we read in the second half of verse 18, what does it say here? But he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. What does that mean? Well, he who was born of God keeps him. This is a second, this second reference to being born of God actually is not referring to the believer. In the first half it says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Right? He's being general. Anyone who is a believer, who has been born of God, will sin. But then he's talking about someone else different here. He who was born of God keeps him. The second reference to being born of God is a reference to Jesus Christ. He is, according to 1 John 4, 9. Let's go back. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only, what? Begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So he is the begotten son of God. As the good shepherd, Jesus protects his flock from the evil one, from Satan. So that does not so much touch him that not just... Touching, it has more to do with laying hold fast or fasten his grip on them. Satan cannot do that to the believers. They are no longer under his control because we have been rescued from the domain of darkness, as Colossians 1, 3, 13 states. Satan can tempt and harass the saints as he did with Job and even with Peter, but he can never reclaim them. Jesus will not fail to keep the redeemed. So a few passages here. Um, maybe you can just listen or you can follow later in, um, in your Bible. But John chapter 10 verse 28 says, Jesus said, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's why Paul could have encouraged his prodigy, prodigy Timothy with his words, 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffered these things, but I'm not ashamed, for 
I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him, entrusted to him until that day. And Jude could pronounce his blessing that we're all familiar with in Jude chapter 1, 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who is able to keep you from stumbling? Him. To make your soul stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy to the only one God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. What a blessing. He keeps us. Now, some may think, actually, and you might have read this verse and thought, well, he's saying here, him, maybe this is referring to the believer. He is able to keep himself. And some believe that. And it is true that Christian, every Christian has a moral personal responsibility. We have responsibility before God to keep ourselves from sinning. But we know that our confidence should not rest in this ability. We know that in our flesh we're weak. Rather, our confidence is to rest on the efforts of the Lord Jesus Christ on the behalf of the believer. In fact, John might have had his strong reasons to emphasize the birth of Jesus here. Why does he mention, why he just doesn't say, Jesus Christ keeps him? Why does he say, uh, brings back the fact that he is born of God? Well, I believe that there's two reasons here that he stresses the fact that Jesus is born of God. First, he wanted to stress our kinship, our relationship. He is our brother. He is one like us. And second, he wanted to remind us that the one who keeps us from temptation was one that was himself tempted. The one who was born of God, guess what? He was tempted just like you and me. And if he was able to overcome those temptations, he is able to aid us in any temptation that we go through. But why should we need such a one to keep us? Well, the answer is seen in John's mention of that one who does harm. Satan is the evil one. The devil, the, the one who holds the entire world in his power, according to verse 19, such a one could certainly destroy us were it not for God's faithful defense of his people. I think sometimes we, you see people overemphasize Satan and what he can do. And then on the other hand, we have those that completely ignore the fact that, yes, he is out there and he is tempting believers. He can't snatch them out of God's hand, but he will do everything he can to discourage them, to tempt them in every way possible. The story of Job is an illustration to this point. How about you turn your Bible to Job chapter 1, and we'll see that. Job chapter 1 is near the book of Psalms. Um, Job 1, and we're looking at verse 9 and 11. Satan wished to destroy Job. Job was a man that walked with God and had a beautiful testimony. But he was unable to do so, and the, it, Satan was unable to do so to the fact that God had placed a hedge, like a fence around Job and all around the things that he had. Satan admitted this indirectly by arguing, and we're looking at verse 9 and 10, says, does Job, in fear, uh, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, you know, just remove your protection, remove your protection from Job's life, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse on your face. Basically, Satan is saying, you know, the only reason why he didn't curse your name is because he has all this prosperous life. It's because he has all these blessings on his life. In this later statement, Satan was proved wrong. 
For when God agreed to lower the hedge a bit, a bit, so that Satan could afflict Job, Job did not retaliate by cursing God. In fact, he blessed God. Jump to verse 21. What does it say there in verse 21? Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The point is, is that God has been keeping Job from Satan's charges. He continued to do so even though, in this case, he allowed Satan to attack his servant to a limited degree and for a limited time. Even whenever God does allow Satan to tape to us, this is for a limited time. He had a triumphal ending in view. In the same way, Jesus keeps us from the one who does us injury. You will remember from last week when I talked about Peter, of Jesus' prayer for him, right? We studied last week that Jesus prayed for Peter, and he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission, demanded permission. I want to remind you of that. Satan cannot do anything unless God gives him permission. Jesus said, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. What a comfort it is for us to know that he who intercedes for us is also more powerful than the one that is out there in the world. Quickly turn to chapter 4 of 1 John. 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But you might say, well, Ronaldo, I understand that, you know, God protects me from my flesh, from my own temptations, from Satan. I get it. Christ can protect me from sinful flesh, from Satan's attacks, but what about the world? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this is our next point in verse 18 and 19. Let's read the whole now, 18 and 19. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Second matter of which he says we know is that John is saying that he and his disciples authentically hold to the faith as opposed to the false teachers whose message John refuses to acknowledge. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the grasp of the evil one. I want you to note note here, this is a strong affirmation. There is no doubt, he's saying, we know without a shadow of a doubt or introspection that we, not the false teachers, are, not want to be, not hope to be, we are of God. That's a certainty. Distinctively to the Christian fellowship, the whole world lies in the grasp of the evil one. One commentator puts it in this way, um, there are only two communities in this world. God's people and all others. One is grasped by Jesus and the other is grasped by Satan. Jesus will not loosen his grasp, his grasp and Satan will not voluntarily loosen his grasp. So the Christian is in a situation in con- of conflict against the spiritual enemies. The world is not in position of conflict it is not a struggling. It lies, it almost lies as though asleep in the grip of Satan, end of quote. You see the difference? The Christian might be in the middle of this battle, but the world is not in no battle at all. They're just lying there in the hands of Satan and they're comfortable with it. As we read here, the whole world, its politics, its economics, this whole system of education, of entertainment, And above all, it's religion. It lies in the power of the evil one. The evil world system is hostile to God and the believers. As John noted earlier in chapter 313. How about you turn there? 
chapter 3.13, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. They hate us. It takes its cue from its ruler, Satan, the arch enemy of God and his people. Because the world is completely under Satan's influence, believers must avoid being contaminated by it. That's what we read in chapter 2, right? Chapter 2 of 1 John. What was the warning that he gave us? Chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Good news is, the world is passing away. And also, it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. He lives forever. So we're faced with the dualism here in 1 John for a while. He constantly pointed to us that there are, are in reality only two realms. In spite of the existence of count, countless political and cultural social entities in the world, there's only these two realms. So it is comforting privilege of believers in addition to have eternal life, answered prayer, victory over sin, to know that they belong to God. They do not belong to this world. Though they exist in this world, they're not part of it. They're children of God, aliens and strangers whose citizenship is in heaven. There is um, no middle ground, no third option. Everyone is either part of God's kingdom or they are part of Satan's kingdom. In the words of Jesus, he said that he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me is scatters. Luke eleven twenty three. And James, in James 4, 4, says, You adulterous, do you not know that the friendship with the world is hostility with God, toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But we're not friends of the world. Although we live in it, and we ought to be a light to the world, we're not part of it. What a comfort and promise. Though all these three enemies are trying to dissuade us from the way, we have God's own promise that he's going to keep us. He'll keep us from our sinful flesh. He'll keep us from Satan's attacks. And he will keep us from this world system. I want to take you to Romans 8. So I think the Apostle Paul beautifully summarizes this absolute certainty that God will preserve his own. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're looking at verse 31 and 39. Now after Paul has um, discussed here that God is going to use anything going to make all things to work together for our good, to make us more like Christ. He is in that work of changing us. He then bursts in this song, in this singing to God and praising him. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for, uh, over for us all. How he will not also with him freely gives us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us? Who will separate, separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It is tough to live in the sight of the world, in the sight of heaven. Verse 37 says, But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I just hear an amen to that? Amen. 
Amen. No, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not ourselves, not Satan, not this world. Now that's this confidence wouldn't rest on our battle alone, John brings us back to the gospel that saved us. This is our second point. God keeps us, keeps our knowledge and salvation. First John chapter 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ. This is a true God and eternal life. This affirmation has been said by commentators is the most crucial of all three. It, under, it undermines the whole structure of the heretics theology. It concerns the Son of God, though whom alone we cannot be rescued from the evil one and delivered from the world. Both this revelation and redemption are God's gracious work. Without Christ, we could neither know God nor overcome sin. That's why the world lies in the evil one, because they don't know God. These are possible to us today only because the Son of God has come, as he states here. And also, having come, he has given us understanding. The, these two verbs must be seen together, that the Son has come and that he has given us understanding. The benefit of his coming remains. His gift he will not take away what he has given us, this understanding. The Greek word for dianoia is the power or capacity of knowing. We can't know God if he doesn't give us this capacity of knowing him. But so that we may know who is true, it's like he's open our, uh, opening our eyes to see. I remember, you know, sometimes um, every now and then a video pops up of someone that is uh, colorblind, or they have a, an impaired vision, and they get, you know, color glasses, and they see colors for the first time. It, it's just this emotional moment. It's like, oh my goodness, this is how the world looks like? And, and that excitement and joy, and people cheer up. I remember my dad had cataract surgery a few years back, and I remember I went to pick him up from the hospital, and and he exited, you know, the, the hospital door, and he started weeping. I was like, Dad, are you okay? Are you in pain? What, what is happening? And he said, everything is so beautiful. I can see clearly. And I, I think this knowledge of God, this opening of our understanding, that's, that's a joy that we have that we looked at this world, we didn't see God. We didn't see his beauty, and now we can see that, that same joy. So the knowledge of God, this is the first gift that Jesus has bought us, brought us in the capacity of knowing God. This suggests not only that Jesus is God and that we see him as God, as Philip said it in John 14, but also that we are incapable of a spiritual sight until he gives this to us. You can see people growing up in church and studying the Bible again and again and again, and yet they can't see those truths that are right in front of them. Until God removes that scale from their eyes, they have that knowledge. Indeed, we are like the blind man in John 9 who could not see Christ. Do not even seek him until Jesus, first of all, sought him and healed him. After we grow in the knowledge, after that we grow in the knowledge as the blind man grew in that knowledge. So moreover, the knowledge of God that Christ gives us, it is not just of any God, it is the one and true and genuine God. The word translated true here in this verse um, the word uh, alethinos, since we have aletheia here in our church, is a true little truth walking there, which is the popular here. And John he uses this word truth a lot, or true. In the gospel, he uses this word truth of genuine worshipers. In chapter 423, he uses for the true and genuine bread, chapter 6, and that Jesus is the true vine in chapter 15. 
So in this first letter, he has already used the word true many times to refer to the light that is dispersing the darkness. So true refers to the, that which is authentic as opposed to that which is false. The ultimate reality as opposed to that which is merely a shadow. In John's day, the Gnostic teachers had made much of their supposed knowledge of God. But it's John's contention that as part of the work of Christ of history who reveals God, such knowledge is not just any knowledge at all, it is the knowledge of the one true God. Those Gnostics, um, actually, they, they exalted knowledge. They were the enlightened ones. And yet, they did not know the one true God. The one knowledge that they needed to possess, they didn't have. So not only God keeps us this knowledge that we have from him, he also guarantees to us the eternal life. The second gift of Jesus' salvation, which he suggests here, is eternal life. Elsewhere, he has indicated that the basis on which we enjoy such life is the atoning death of Jesus Christ, through which God's just wrath against sin is turned away and a new relationship is established between God and man. He also indicated the channel through which this life is received, and that is faith. Believing in what God has said concerning his Son and committing oneself to him as a Savior. Now that we have seen the, how God keeps us, we are exhorted in a way to keep ourselves in the Lord on verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So we learned that there is one true God, but we also know that there are false gods by which we need to be kept from. They're God's substitutes. This leads us to our third point. God's children should keep themselves from idols. They should keep themselves from idols. He comes back here to that endearing terminology, little children. That's how he's going to close his letter. My dear children, his final exhortation is based on these three assurances that he has just uttered. Keep yourselves from idols. Arises naturally from the condition and character that the true Christian that he has been expounding. Yes, we know that the Son of God will keep us, but that does not relieve us from the responsibility of keeping ourselves. John's concluding warning to keep ourselves from idols reflects the significance of worshiping the true God exclusively. The danger of idolatry was especially serious in Ephesus, where John likely wrote this epistle and the center of worship. So this is a historical element here that it is helpful for us to know. Ephesus was the center of worshiping of the goddess Artemis, or for the Romans, Diana. A few decades earlier, the ministry of the Apostle Paul had sparked a riot uh, by her zealous worshiper. So in Acts chapter, 20, chapter 19, if you read that, you will see the first time Paul gets there and he's preaching about Jesus, he's preaching about salvation in Christ and the worshipers of Diana and Artemis, they get furious and they come on Paul and they cause a riot in the city. And then Paul gives us a similar warning, Ephesians 5.5. 5, For this you know with certainty that no immoral people, no impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. He says also in Colossians 3.5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and even desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. What I'm trying to get at here is, though few in our contemporary culture worship physical idols, you don't see people bowing down to statues today like they did back then. But like on those days, their worship was seen in their sinful practices. Idolatry is just as widespread today as it used to be back then. Anything that people elevate about God is an idol of the heart. In fact, like Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says that every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God must be smashed. And only Christ exalted the idolatry was evident in the life of the false teachers, and John 
wanted to give a warning to his beloved flock in Ephesus. This is how a commentator explains this. Those who claim to be Christians but do not believe the truth concerning Jesus do not live the righteous life of obeying God's command and do not love others are in danger of idol worship. This is an idol because they have created a religion that is false. This is a religion that man has created and not that came from the apostolic faith. This is nothing short of idolatry to embrace a form of Christianity that allows one to deny the truth about Jesus, not live a godly life, not to love others, is to create an idol. That is something all Christians must constantly guard against. End of quote. Whenever we try to define God on our own terms, we are creating a God of our own making. Idolatry is the precise reverse of the gospel because the focus is not on the one true God, but anything that competes for our exclusive worship. Many times the Old Testament prophets has spoken to God's people that idols are not just the things that we bow down to, but things or people that we allow to take that place in our hearts. So I want to conclude with this appeal to you to examine your hearts. That's why the reformer, um, you know, actually the prophet Jeremiah states, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's why the reformer John Calvin has stated that man's nature uh, our sinful nature, our sinful flesh, is a perpetual factory of idols. Surprisingly, the object of idolatry can even be a good thing. Something that God created to be good and to be enjoyed by us. It has been said once that whenever we turn a good thing into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. That's the definition for an, of an idol for you. Whenever we turn a good thing into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. Tim Keller helps us to see idolatry is sin when he says, the ultimate reason for any sin is that something besides Christ is functioning as an alternative righteousness or a source of confidence. This is an idol. It's a pseudo savior that creates inordinate desires. Um, Luther, in his treatise on good works, he says, those who do not trust God at all times do not see God's favor and grace and good toward them in everything they do, in everything they suffer, in their living, in their dying, but seek his favor in other things or even in themselves. Do not keep this first commandment to have no other gods before him. Rather, they practice idolatry even if they were to do the works of all the rest of the commandments, if they don't love God above all else, that's idolatry. Anything that takes away from our enjoyment and trusting God creates idols of necessity in our hearts. For if we make our career or our morality even, oh, I'm going to be a good person, even that could be an idol that self-righteousness, or our marriage, or our fundamental confidence in life, our wisdom, our degrees, our power, then these things can become idols, which we look for them instead of Christ. So in sum, idolatry is anything you love, enjoy, or pursue more than God, more than Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. Idols say we or others are true when God says only Christ is true. Idols say that they will give life when God says that he's the only one that can give life. Idols promise, but they cannot deliver. Whatever, whereas God says Christ both provides and he delivers. So guard yourself from the idols of power, or control, or comfort, or approval, or position, applause, pleasure, your heart will never be satisfied or at rest if any of these little false gods is taking hold of your heart. 
I'd like to close with John 4, 14, where Jesus perfectly states, John 4, 14. Yes, we're tempted. Yes, we all have these allurements to us. But we have something better. We have something better. John 4, 14 says, But whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him shall never thirst. But the water that I'll give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you. Because you are this fountain of living waters. Lord, for those of us who have trusted our lives to you, you are always springing up with joy, with satisfaction, with confidence that John spoke again and again that we can have this assurance that nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. If we wanted to run away from you, Lord, you know that we couldn't because you wouldn't leave your grasp. Lord, if Satan wants to take us away from you, he couldn't because he can't get us out of your grasp. And even if this whole world turns against us, Lord, we have the confidence that they cannot separate us. Lord, but we know that we struggle that we struggle to forget your promises. We struggle to see things through the knowledge of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to open our understanding and grow us in this knowledge of you so that we might enjoy you more and more and not find joy in other things, on these false gods. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that comes to the conclusion that they're not saved, you might open their eyes to see their need for you. And for those that have trusted you, may they go confident and praise your name for how you preserve your saints. In Jesus' name, amen.